Today's episode is sponsored by Hello Atelier, the podcast that takes you inside artist studios. Join host Betsy Blodgett as she sits down with quilters, textile artists, ceramicists, painters, and more, many in their very own studios. Further immerse yourself in creative worlds by visiting helloatelier.org to see photos from their studio visits and links to each artist's work. Sign up for the Hello Atelier newsletter for bonus interviews with makers and entrepreneurs, including myself. Hello Atelier is available on all your favorite podcast apps. Tune in to their latest episode with quilter Luke Haynes. And if you like what you hear, subscribe and give them a rating. Thank you, Hello Atelier. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 125 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about elevating haberdashery with my guest, Carolyn Denham. Together, Carolyn and her husband, Roderick Field, are the owners of Merchant and Mills, a fabric, notions, and patterns company based in the UK. They founded the company in 2010 with the intention of bringing style and purpose to the overlooked world of sewing. Merchant and Mills products are stocked in retailers all over the world, and the company has collaborated with London's V&A Museum and with Alexander McQueen. The pair have published three books that aim to enable and inspire more people to find the satisfaction of simply making. Carolyn has a degree in fashion design and has worked in New York, Italy, and London. Carolyn Denham, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Abby. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm really excited to talk with you and also to hear the backstory behind Merchant and Mills because this is a brand that I have admired and whose products I've seen in my local shop here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, far from where you are, um, and always sort of wondered about. And so I'm fascinated to hear the story behind them. Um, So we're going to start with your background. Um, And I know you worked in the fashion industry, and I think that's a really important part of these products. So can you talk a little bit about what you did prior to founding Merchant and Mills? Talk about those years um, when you were working in fashion. What were you doing exactly? Well, I think the whole backstory, I mean, it's quite interesting, really. When I was growing up, I just really loved, I made all my own clothes, I made clothes for all my friends. I made everybody's school uniforms. And I was kind of really passionate about it. And it sort of led me directly into doing a degree in fashion. It seemed like a logical step to do. It's like, um, I love designing, making, painting. And then when I graduated, um, I spent some time in New York and did lots of different things with lots of different um, kind of design disciplines, if you like, rather than just straight fashion. And, um, but I did some great collaborations with other designers and did a small range myself. Then I went off to um, join a kind of very um, a business-like industry in Italy and uh, worked in a studio designing all day long. 
And um, what I thought about it after um, doing it for a while was um, I could be doing any, I could be typing here. I'm just literally designing all day long. I'm not having any making interaction, any production interaction. And uh, it's not me. It's not what I want to do. I want to be uh, a maker. And when I came back after 12 years out of the UK, I came back to the UK. And uh, I had this, what I thought was the most fabulous idea. So this is um, just the turn of the millennium, so 2000. And I had this brilliant idea. I'm going to set up this company and uh, you're going to be able to um, either buy the finished dress or buy the pattern and make it yourself. And I, everybody was like, Carolyn, that's just the dumbest idea I've ever heard. It's like nobody sews, just you sew. You know, it's out there as an idea. And so I kind of, it wasn't, uh, I'd just come back to the UK, so I kind of needed to get my feet back on the ground as far as, you know, work was concerned. So I went to work for a company that did uh, hand-printed textiles and, and wallpaper and hand glass. And they're amazingly uh, uh, talented duo, actually. And I learned a lot from from working with them. But again, it was really, especially in the first few years, was really just hands-on, working with my hands, printing every day, scrubbing screens, mixing colors. And it was great. I loved it. And um, after that, I went on and I worked for an interior design practice. And that was more of a kind of um, uh, production, uh, project management kind of uh, role. But again, you know, collaborating with a lot of um, really amazingly creative people in the design area. And um, and then I got quite ill, actually, and um, I had a very sudden brain hemorrhage and uh, a, a brain an aneurysm on my brain. And when I was going into surgery and uh, I had my time alone in the room on a, on a slab, and I was like, well, you know, uh, the surgeon explained all the you know terrible consequences of having the surgery, uh, potential terrible consequences, and um, I was like, you know, um, okay, Carolyn, you know, how does this look? If we're we could, this could be it, you know, this could be goodbye, and for sure you're going to be here again, you know, at the end of your life. Um, uh, what what do we, you know, what do we think of it? Do is it, uh, you know? And I was like, well, you know. I've done some great things. I've worked in some um, with some great people. I've done some amazing projects and lived in amazing places. Yeah, you know, it's all good. But I thought I haven't really shone. I haven't really been myself 100% true to what I believe in. And I said to myself, okay, you know, if we come out of this with everything intact, um, you know, come on, we'll do, we'll do this... Uh, we'll do this sewing idea and it obviously <laughs> it all went fine and that's how Merchant Mills was born really. Wow so it was almost like you had to have this I mean not maybe not had to but you did have this sort of face you know you were faced with your own mortality and you went back to this idea 
that had occurred to you way back in 2000, 2002, somewhere back then that everybody had shot down. You know, you had come back from Italy and you had had this idea of this sewing, do-it-yourself sewing pattern um, design company and everyone who you had told about it, seemingly the your your loved ones, the people who supported you the most, had said, this is never going to work. And yeah. and it was because to them, nobody was sewing. You were sewing. They knew you as somebody who was a designer, somebody who made things, was a maker. But to them, it seemed like you were the only one. Is that is that why they thought it I, was I think that was that spot on actually, Abby. I think um Unless you kind of know about the world, or at least at that time, um, you don't know that it exists. You don't know that there are all these makers out there and all these, you know, amazing creative people that are sewing and making. And I think over the last, you know, sort of decade, that has really grown and become, you know, its own movement. But um, for the average person, uh, who's not involved in the in in the creative industries or or is is a, is a creative uh, person themselves? They they wouldn't they wouldn't believe that the world exists in the way that it does. That it's so you know huge and powerful. And um, I think you know for me it was really I don't really mind if it's a complete disaster. I just mind that I just do it and. Even then, in that was in 2006, eight, or, and I set up Merchant and Mills in 2009. Even then, everybody, I, I couldn't have been more discouraged. Wow. <laughs> yeah, know? but you did it anyway, and maybe you needed that bravery from that sort of, that moment of, of mortality to say, I don't care, you know, I know that this is what I need. And this is what my dream is and that I only have one life to live. And so I'm going to go and be myself. As you said, I love that idea of like, I haven't really been myself. And so this is me and I'm going to go and and be myself. And so um, at that time, how did you, had you met Roderick? Were you together already? How did you meet him? Um, Roderick and I had worked together quite a lot. Um, Roderick is Photographer, and I worked on a, quite a few interiors projects where he was the photographer. And we we met. We kind of were working on quite an intense um, project, portfolio project for uh, a designer. And um, we that's when we kind of met. And I was starting Merchant and Mills and and um, working, you know, twenty four seven and. Um, I was working on the graphics for, for Merchants Merchant and Mills. And I said to Roderick about the ideas for the logos and the, and, and he said, well, what if we look at it like this and this? And suddenly Roderick's graphic talent just came out and it was amazing. Um, you know, he, he, so that's when we kind of, you know, and, you know, obviously he, he was, you know, the resume of the moment. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think that that's really interesting because the branding is really important. Um, and we're going to talk about the products because the products are obviously really important too. Um, but the branding is really important, I think, to this 
um, this company's success. So um, can you take a minute now and just describe what the branding looks like for anybody who hasn't had an opportunity yet to check out what Merchant and Mills products look like, I would encourage people to go on the website or um, go into your local, you know, sort of uh, maybe a, a fine um, haberdashery or quilting shop or sewing shop that does carry um, these products and take a look at it. But for somebody who hasn't had an opportunity to do that yet, just describe kind of what the aesthetic is or how would you say the branding looks? Um, for us, when we started to design the branding, we wanted it to feel, you know, quite British and quite established British style. And we, uh, but I didn't want it to look really um, uh, retro. I didn't want it to look vintage. I wanted to have some modernness about it. So it's a black and white, majority black and white, um, design and we have some some old fonts in there we but we have a very uh modern kind of um sandwich we always call it so we've got the national mills logo we might have a tailored chalk in a sort of it's almost like a photograph or it's between a photograph and a drawing so it looks quite stark and modern and contemporary set in with this a very uh, traditional and beautiful uh, fonts around that, that encompass it. So we, we, it was really important for us to create a packaging that it was that justified the creative customer we were going to have. And for me, it was like haberdashery had never had that kind of attention. You can buy a thousand bars of soap that are beautifully packaged. But all your boxes of pins come in plastic, you know, plastic, pink plastic containers. And it's why can't, you know, we, our world have that attention to detail and beauty that many other uh, disciplines have. So that was our inspiration, really, for making, for spending so much time and energy and making great packaging. Yeah. And I, I loved, um, I was reading some interviews you've done and you had said, you know, when, um, let, let's say a man decides he's going to learn carpentry, um, or woodworking as a hobby, for example, he'll go out and buy like the best saws and woodworking tools, um, but when a woman or a woman or a man, let's just say anybody decides that they want to sew, they'll go and get this like plastic handled scissors and that's enough, you know, that's supposed to be good enough. And your point being like, why wouldn't sewing as a trade um, or as a craft have the same fineness or quality of tools as carpentry. Why wouldn't you go and invest in the same quality of tools? Why would you settle for a little plastic, pink plastic container? And we'll talk about the color pink in a few minutes about pink plastic container of pins or, you know, um, hand, you know, or like uh, plastic handled scissors when that's not what you would settle for if you chose, you know, another kind of, of, 
um, trade to pursue? Yeah, I think um, I think it's always interesting, Abby, when um, when people say, "Oh, do you mind, you know, taking up this ball gown dress for me, you know, by two inches?" As if it's you know going to take five minutes to do, or you don't doesn't really require very much skill, or uh, you know, it's um, it's not a really important job, and it you wouldn't ask that same thing of a cabinet maker maybe uh, or you would you know expect them you know to to you know to pay them to do it or you know whatever there's this kind of very sort of relaxed attitude to to the, the craft and the skill and the craftsmanship of sewing and it is you know it is um it is a, a, a huge skill to have and it should be treated with that reverence and I think you know we traveled the world to get the best tools we could we could bring at the an affordable price to to the home sewer so you could be using tools that are um that met that merit the job if you like right exactly and um you know I think that that's interesting too and since you had worked you had worked, as you said, the, all those years that you spent um, in Italy um, and working in fashion houses, you knew also what the real tools were. In other words, you weren't coming at this as a hobbyist. You had had real training as a person who had worked for a design house. And so another aspect of this is that you were able to select tools that were industry quality tools. And those are actually different from what maybe a hobbyist tool looks like. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what some of those differences might be that people might not even be aware of? Well, I think, you know, I think the key, one of the, the, the most important tools is, is a pair of scissors. And the reason why, you know, we prefer like a heavy metal traditional side bent shear is because the weight, even the weight of the blade is helping you cut. If you're, if you're using a very lightweight blade, it's not got any, any in, integral power that helps it cut. So there, it, that might seem like a very subtle thing, but um, it's, it's all the difference. And if you're um, if you're spending a lot of time cutting out, it's like the, it, having an amazing, beautiful pair of scissors is um, going to make your life just so much more pleasurable. And I don't know that I picked up all my knowledge from just you know, from working because quite often I wasn't in a in a in a in a, in a, uh, a studio that was making. I was more in a design studio. But um, I grew up with you know my mum, my grandmother. They were all makers. They were all sewers, and they had the tools still that they bought when they were you know in their twenties, and they still had those tools. And it's like I want those scissors that mum had because she was still using them you know, 30 years later. So so then I went and I researched and I researched and, it, and I, just going to meet the manufacturers, you go and talk to the manufacturers, they will tell you what's the best. 
they will tell you um, what, e what each scissor has been designed for. So, you know, we might have a pair of buttonhole scissors. Well, what is the difference between a normal scissor and a buttonhole scissor? Well, you've got a big handle and you've got a very short blade. So that's a very powerful um, pair of scissors and is great for cutting through thick, tailored buttonholes uh, for opening them up. So it's things like that, the subtlety of things that um, I think we've really researched out and things like even the pins that we use, the entomology pins for very fine fabrics for, for antique fabrics because they won't, they won't leave a, a rust mark because they're enameled. And, um, they, uh, and then things like the toilet pins, very heavy, thick pins of, that we get from uh, a company in Spain. So we try to buy the very best we can uh, from the companies that have been making them for years. So they are, they have, uh, they're very often using the same machinery they've always used. They're made in the same way. They're hand-dipped or hand-finished or, you know, it's just, a, it's just a different world to going to where most haberdashery is made uh, in China and, you know, buying things that are just not quite what I would consider up to the job. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, the Hello Atelier podcast, and the host of that podcast, Betsy Blodgett. My name is Betsy Blodgett, and I'm the host of Hello Atelier. And what is Hello Atelier all about? So Hello Atelier is kind of my excuse to get to go into the studios of artists and makers that I really admire, um, and not only get to sit down and talk to them about their process and their inspiration, but also actually get to see and kind of experience where they work. The audio portion, obviously, of the podcast is the interview um, where we talk to them about everything they're doing and how they got there and what they want to do in the future. And then we also have a visual portion of the podcast where if you go on our website, we've taken um, photographs of their studio, which is fun. Some people have totally tidied their studio, so it's beautiful and clean. And then some people it's in mid-project, so it's a disaster, like all studios should be. And what kinds of people do you have on the show? Like what kinds of guests? Um, so we have, we have a whole slew of makers. Now, a lot of them are textile oriented because that's my background. I'm, I've been in the sewing industry for many years. Um, but I also love ceramicists and painters. Um, so it's, it's really anyone who's making anything, you know, we, we spoke with a coffee roaster in our first season. Last season, we went to England and I got to speak with my favorite author. So it's, it's anyone who is creative and making something. Okay, great. And about how long are the episodes? They're a little shorter than my podcast. Yeah, you know, we, we keep them like 15, 20, 25 minutes long. And the reason for that is that when I used to work in an office, I had a roughly 20 minute commute. And it would drive me crazy because all the podcasts I listened to were either very long or just like slightly too long. And where can people go to check out Hello Atelier? 
Um, so Hello Atelier can be found on any of your favorite podcast apps. Um, but we also have HelloAtelier.org, and you can listen to the episode streaming there. And that's where you'll also find the pictures of the um, studios. Well, Betsy, thank you so much. Thank you. And now back to my conversation with Merchant and Mills. And so how does a new Merchant and Mills product come about? Because I always think that's interesting. Like what leads the way when you're deciding to add a new product to the family? You know, is it that you were somewhere and saw something and thought, oh, wow, I need that? Or is it that you're making something and think, wait a minute, I don't have the perfect tool for this. Where can I go to get it? And then you set out on a search for it and start asking people, have you seen something, you know, where, where can I get the perfect thing? Um, so how, like, how do you, how does it begin? How does the new, the new product uh, begin? I think it, more, moreover, it, we will find that we need a product. So we will, we want a hole punch, and we there are a million hole punches in the world. So you, then you have to go into this search of the manufacturer you want, the quality you want, and the price you want to pay. So we found hole punches that were, you know, two hundred and eighty pounds. So, you know, we're talking $350 or something. And we found whole punches that were maybe $5. And we're like, okay, either these extremes are not going to work for us. We would prefer to go to a British manufacturer because we can go and visit them. We can talk to them. We know that they've been doing it for maybe 150 years, the same thing. And um, so we're going to have start this conversation. And we, I've only just, ordered a whole punch and that conversation probably started two years ago to get the right product that is the right merchant and mills product then we might also what might happen abby is we might have a a uh, manufacturer who we use already and we love and they will come to us and they say we've developed this new um pin um would would you be interested? And it's maybe a new product for them. And so we'll maybe get some in and we'll try them out. And then we'll just see whether we think it can fit with our our, um, our ethos and our design and, and the need for the product. It's like, is it necessary? We don't want to just have things, you know, you can go on and go on and buy more and more um, tools and haberdashery. But it's like, do we really need it? Do we want to offer it to our customers? And then, you know, it may work its well in, way in or it may just sit on itself. It really depends. But it's generally quite a long process. Right. Yeah. That's a two-year product development process that you're describing there, which is really interesting. But I also really love, and there's a video on the Merchant and Mills site that people can check out um, that I'll link to. But I love the idea that Roderick um, talks about in that video around timelessness, where, yeah. and he talks about how 
what you're doing isn't really anything revolutionary. In other words, and he says like about his own photography that he could be taking these photos anytime with any kind of camera and like a good pair of scissors is a good pair of scissors. And as you were talking about your mother's and your grandmother's scissors, like you can use them anytime in any generation. And it's basically just like this timeless, beautiful thing that you look after for a long time. And I love that idea. And I think, I mean, maybe I wonder what you think about this, about around people wanting something that they don't throw away sort of in this very, um, you know, fast fashion, digital age that the there's a renewed appreciation of that timelessness and of good craftsmanship and hanging on to and mending and that sort of thing. I think, Abby, that is a really important um, philosophy that we, in in making and in the tools that you have, and and just as I was saying about adding things to the range, it's like if we don't need them, we don't need to add them. We don't need to have new products for the sake of new products. Um, and in, in business in particular, I think it's, you feel the need all the time to produce new product for your um, your stockist. And, and we don't really do that. We take out, we take a lot, people that know us will know, we don't release, you know, hundreds of patterns. We really sometimes release one pattern a year. Sometimes we have one new product a year. We only want to do it if we really feel it's right. And that people can get like real value out of each pattern. Like each pattern is going to have a longevity that you're going to be able to remake it and wear it for years. It's not a fashion thing. Like Roger said, I think it's really true. It's like we try to steer away from fashion and make clothes so that you can keep wardrobe building with the same things. Nothing you're you're making is going to fade away and you're going to say, oh, you know. Uh, like a flared, you know, bell-bottom trouser or something that's a fad. It's like we try to stay away from that. We try to be interesting and innovative, but we try to stay fairly kind of classic, really. Fairly bearable and and honest, I think. Yeah, I wonder if there's some risk in that, though. You know, because, um, you know, I just think about, you know, um, like these fabric companies and this pressure to constantly release all of this new fabric every season and have all this exciting new releases constantly. And even for pattern companies too, like cycles of new releases and and this feeling like if you don't have something new, new, new to share on social media, that you're going to lose ground. And, you know, um, and, and so maybe there's a feeling like, gosh, if I if I step out of that, you know, then people are going to think I'm not relevant anymore, you know, and, and you've chosen not to do that, to have these classic, each thing is classic and each thing is, is what you're saying is going to stay relevant forever. Um, but uh, do you feel like there's any risk in deciding not to play that game? Um, I think, I think to a point, Abby, to say that you, you can't, you have to be involved in the game to a certain extent because you, you know, we, Merchant and Mills is a business. 
it employs people that uh, that we need to look after. So, to a certain extent, we have to find that balance that enough enough to keep our customers interested and engaged that we are bringing new product to them, but more more that we the product that we do bring is properly thought out and properly properly relevant to them. So, um, you know, we 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 travel quite a lot and we will spend a lot of time with the the fabric producers that we work with. And you know, I might go and I might think I, I might have fifty fabrics that I've chosen and then the next day I will go back to the very same person and I'll look at the fabrics again and I will reduce that down to 30, and then I will reduce it down again to 25, because really, I only love 25. I think I love 50 when I first see them all, but actually, I really only love 25. And I think the key is, it's like, make sure you love everything, and then then it will have that longevity, then, and then it will be more exciting as well for your customer to see because it is really special. Yeah, and I will point out that, like, you are on Instagram and you do Instagram really well. Uh, I don't know if it's you or if it's an employee. I'm assuming it, it's probably an employee. Um, yes. Am I right? That it's yes. An, okay. Oh. Yeah, and and so you, it's not like you've opted out of those things. Like you, you are playing that game. If if it's a game, I think it's it isn't <laughs> to a degree. Um, but you're doing it, and you're doing it beautifully, and you know, engaging everybody there with beautiful photos of what you have in your fabric. And I was just looking on it yesterday in preparation and thinking to myself, I'm about to make a dress. Like I need to order this fabric. So <laughs> I was totally in, enticed. You know, Abby. Yeah. Our, our point is, yeah, is totally. And we 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 feel that um, it, it is all about our customers, really. And we've just we've just, for example, we just renovated our other building in Rye, and we've made a huge shop, and we've made a sewing school upstairs. Now that's not really a business decision because Rye is a small town. We we get people come specially to see us. So we don't get, the shop is never packed full. We don't get many people in, but the people that come in have come especially to see us. So the idea about doing the big shop, it's not a business idea. It's not going to make us money, but it's about giving our customers who make that journey a really amazing experience that they can walk in a beautiful shop full of beautiful, exciting things. Maybe some things that we don't put online that are especially in the shop. And it's all for them. We've done it all for them. And it's like an anti-business decision. But it's about it's about our customers. You know, we, we're here for, for for them. That's why we exist. Yeah. We want to share our our kind of our vision with them. Abs- and, yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and tell us a little bit about, about the shop. I actually want to hear a little bit about that. So you're you're in Rye, and that is where, which is in East Sussex, and that is where you have your warehouse. So that's like the hub of where 
where Merchant Mills is located. You have this this retail space there. It sounds like you've also expanded to have, is it like a classroom space now as well? Um, and then um, and then from there, you do this wholesale business where you're shipping um, all of these um, patterns and notions and um, fabrics, et cetera, to stores all over the world. So um, to talk a little bit about sort of what this Rye complex looks like. Well, we basically have two buildings in Rye. So we have one uh, where we're all in, in, we've done a temporary shop here and all the retail, so the shop, the, the internet packing, packing and the wholesale um, uh, distribution kind of bit sounds too big at um, but where we're, so we're all based in the same building right now. And so we're going to divide into two locations. So the, the wholesale side will stay in this building where we are now, where the pop-up shop is. And the retail will move to its own building. And that is one that we've just renovated. And I'm really excited about it. And... Um, so, yeah, we don't know how it's going to go, but there'll be a sewing school upstairs and um, there'll be the shop downstairs. And that's where all the retail side of the business will happen. And um, I think, we, you know, we've done a lovely, it, the shop, it's starting to look really amazing. So I'm very excited about it all. And how far, forgive my total ignorance of geography, but how far is this from London? So it's about, if there's a very um, fast, um, train link between Rye and London. So it takes about, I guess, an hour, an hour and a bit if you went on the train. And for driving, it probably takes an hour and a half. So it's south of London. It's on the coast. It's near Hastings. Um, a lot of people know where Hastings Okay, great. So it's a it's a great sort of like outing if you're in London yeah. and love to sew and want to come and visit. And it's a small, um, very traditional English town. Uh, it's very pretty. Uh, there's lots of you know nice shops and uh, cafes and restaurants kind of thing. So it's a nice day out. Oh, yeah. Sounds terrific. I would definitely love to come if I, the next time I'm in London, which I'm not sure when that will be, but I will, (laughs) I'll put it on my list because that sounds fantastic. Uh, Yeah. So, okay. So I want to hear a little bit about some of your um, collaborations. So I mentioned in the intro that you've done a collaboration with the um, Victoria and Albert Museum and also with Alexander McQueen. So maybe you could talk a little bit about each of those. Yeah, I mean, um, the collaborations with the BNA are just amazing because, you know, they're, you know, when I, growing up, it was the perfect museum. It is uh, all about um, crafts, basically, the museum. If people don't know what it is, it's a, a huge museum in London. It has fantastic textile and clothing um, uh, 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 exhibitions. Uh, anyway, and... Um, so we did, we've done several collaborations with them and um, we've done some specific uh, products just for um, the DNA. And then they approached us to um, produce some products for the Alexander McQueen exhibition, which I'm sure most people know about. It was a hugely successful exhibition. 
and started off in, in, in New York and then came over, was kind of reinvented and, and, and shown again in London uh, at the VNA and um, was a huge sellout show. So we were just so moved to, to be approached by um, the, the two people, the VNA and Alexander McQueen, to, to uh, produce some product for them. So we did some huge um, big bolt um, tailored shears and Teflon coated with a beautiful seal on them in a special box. And they were just amazing looking. And we did lots of small products, affordable, small things that people could take away. And it was a very exciting thing to be involved in. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, so neat. It needs to be recognized. Um, amazing, really amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally cool. And, um, and then you've also published some books. Yeah. Um, which I think is really cool because it sort of furthers your mission of helping people to um, rediscover the joy of sewing and especially those people who said to you, um, oh, this this idea of yours that people are going to want to buy sewing patterns is ridiculous and crazy. Yeah. Um, so helping those people to say, okay, well, here's a book where yeah. you can learn how to do this old uh, old school skill and craft. Um, so your books, um, you know, you have one around like elementary sewing skills and one about um, hand sewing. Um, so uh, I wondered if you um, wanted to just talk a little bit about why you felt like it was important to have those books and what you know what you felt like they added to your kind of like your portfolio of products I think when we did the first book Abby I think we thought about I thought about quite simple projects that could get somebody started because I think that was that was in about 2000 or something uh, 2010 we did the first book and I think um, I wanted people that had had discovered us to start to build their sewing skills so I wanted to produce a book that really things were quite simple and easy to make and that I was covering also some of the basic sewing techniques so people could learn just by making by you know referring to the book and um, it wasn't so much about dressmaking more about just starting to sew and it was important to make projects that were that were practical, that were beautiful, that were that were different and new, and um, and then when when our, our customer was you know getting a little bit more confident about the sewing, but was a little bit overwhelmed. So you're talking about people who maybe have never sewn before, so a little bit overwhelmed by how much information was out there. That's when we did elementary skills, which was basically this is how to do a pocket. This is how to put a dip in. This, like, we don't need to tell you how to put every dip in. We can just tell you how to put one basic dip in. So just to reduce the amount of information that's out there to, to, to give you, like, a bit of a handbook for basic sewing projects. And then the third book was the most complicated book, which was, um, it has five, um, no, it has more than five patterns in it. But it basically has its own patterns in it. Um, that you just trace off, and uh, it, ha it has a comprehensive wardrobe in you know, trousers, jackets, uh, tops, dresses, so you can, you know, make your whole wardrobe. It's, it's, a, it's more advanced, definitely. It's pushing 
is pushing our, our customers to, you know, you know, develop their skills. We did a special buyer's dress, which talks a lot about specialist techniques to to um, when you're working on the buyers. And so it's like building that knowledge base, building the skills, getting the confidence to, to start to properly replace your high-speed wardrobe with a homemade um, wardrobe. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I guess I feel like it's interesting. Like I think of your books as part of your product lines, right? Because it kind of all feeds the same, it all feeds kind of like the same end goal, you know, whether it's like buying, um, you know, buying a great pair of scissors or buying this book, it's sort of all the mission or sort of the big idea is all the same. I think that's it. It's like, it's, it's all the same. And this, you know, there's, a, there's quite a nice group now of independent pattern makers that have written books. We've all got different styles, but we've all got the same mission. We all have the same passion. And it's like, you know, get off the high street. Let's start, let's start, you know, spending your Saturday in your little sewing room making something great. Yeah, I read an article not long ago about how, you know, back in maybe, let's say, the 20s, um, sewing was a way to opt in to high fashion. So yeah. you weren't able to afford high fashion necessarily. Uh, and so by sewing your own clothes, you could opt into high fashion in an affordable way. And now today, let's say in 2018, when we're recording this podcast, um, sewing is a way to opt out of high fashion. I mean, it's an interesting a thing to think about, right? It's like a way of opting out of all of that. Yeah. Um, and so I just thought that that was an interesting uh, framing. I think that it's very well said, actually, uh, Abby. I haven't heard it said like that. But um, I definitely, when I was growing up, sewing was about um, saving money. It was about having the things on the high speed that you couldn't afford, but you could, you could make them. And um, there was, and, but now I always think sewing is about having something that's better than, than, than what's available to you on, your, on the high speed because you can use better quality fabric you can probably make it better. If you examine some things on the high street, you might be like, mm -hmm, that's great. So, um, it, and it's also about spending your time in a completely different way. But I think it's very well said what um, you yeah. just said. Yes, I think it's it kind of, you know, puts it in a nutshell, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's like taking back or something like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It's definitely the meaning has changed or sort of the purpose in, in some way, um, even though the act is the same, which yeah. is um, which is interesting to think through. And um, and so you've recently um, I read on the website that you've recently released a ready to wear collection called Label. And I wondered, um, I wondered sort of what was the motivation behind that? I'm guessing that people would come in to the shop or would. Uh, maybe comment online or contact you and say, oh, I love this dress um, or I love this fabric, but I don't sew. Can you just sell me the dress? Is that uh, yeah, right? That's exactly what happened. It was like, you know, we had some quite angry customers come in the shop and say, what do you mean I can't buy it? And um, I think we, we decided to do the label as a bit of an experiment and also because it's like okay we can do this 
little collection and I was I was a little bit wary of it because it was quite a nice little project to do. Like a little collection is like you can make it or buy it, you know, which was my idea way back in 2000. Um, but I was also a little bit tentative about I don't want to get involved in producing a collection, you know, once a year, twice a year, three times a year, four times a year. I don't want to get onto that treadmill. So we did it, and we that was uh, a few years ago, actually, that we did that. And we did it, and we didn't do it again. We just did the one, you know, wham, bam, you know, six garments. When they sold out, that was it. That maybe, was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we'll do something else again, but maybe we won't. I don't know. It's, it's always interesting to try new things, you know, never say never to anything. But, um, but yeah, it was, and it was definitely, Abby, a reaction to people coming into the shop and saying, why can't I buy it? Right. Okay. So, yeah, it was an experiment. And, um, right, and also sort of keeping your mind open, possibly in the future again, or something else could happen in the future, too. And I promised earlier that we would talk about the color pink. Um, I know that you said that you don't want things pink in your line. And I noticed there isn't anything pink. There's no pink in the packaging. There's a little red every now and then, but no pink. Um, so how are you feeling about the color pink? I know. I love the color pink. Okay. Uh, Abby, I think I think I was just it was just a reaction maybe because it seems like it seems like if you wanted to appeal to a woman, you put it in a pink box. And it it, it was like, well, you know, I'm a woman and I don't really have very many pink boxes and, and probably not, you know, the kind of person that does. Um so it was like I I just wanted it it's like we don't have to have it presented to us like that. And we now, you know, I buy pink fabric. Yeah, we sell some pink fabric. Uh, we just did, we just um, uh, uh, commissioned a dyer to do um, some hand-dyed avocado, so that's nice and pink. So I don't do a lot of pink, but I do do pink. I don't hate pink. I love pink. Pink's a great color. Okay, got it. Um, but it's more of a reaction of sort of this packaging or sort of this marketing toward women. Yeah. Of you know why why do we have to have pink you know just because we're girls right exactly okay no I I, it seems that you have to be a girl but you know right okay I see Um, right right and and you were mentioning that you travel um and sort of go on these buying trips and um maybe you could tell us a little bit about where where you're buying fabric are you traveling to asia where are you going to buy um i saw some japanese fabrics are you going to japan recently we went to japan so we go um we go to japan india eastern europe um Anywhere that makes great fabric. We go to Paris, we go... Basically, I think fabric is a bit like food. So every country, I think, uh, has its own cuisine. And it also has its own fabric. And so I think when you go there, you get really involved. You see what the real food fabric story is. And you meet the makers. You meet the people that are making it. You meet some amazing people. Some fabric you can't buy. It's not right for for merchant the mills. It's not right. Uh, it's too difficult to use, or it's too expensive, or it's you know you can't wash it, or or, or 
lots of different stories. But, you know, we find amazing makers, amazing producers, amazing mills. So we try and go and visit everybody. And we go, you know, we go to our, our linen mills at least once a year, if not uh, more often. So we have a conversation with them. We know them. We know them as people. Nice. And then you need to have certain requirements. You probably need to have a certain minimum that you need to be able to get. Um, and then do you need to be able to source it in an ongoing way? Or are you okay with the fact that you may not be able to get it again? We have two, basically two, um, you know, collections going on. Stuff that's always in production. So we're buying, you know, we've got a selection of colors and selection of fabrics. And we're always they're on a rolling order system. And then we have things that we just buy to one off. So um, it's nice to kind of mix it up. So we're not too, um, you know, regimented that we always have to have the same stock. But we are in a position now that we can commission things. We can commission our own colors, our own weaves. We can get, you know, specialist prints done. We're just working with a, a young print designer now that um, we're going to start with this dialectical experimentation called a graduate collection. So we're taking a graduate, just finished their degree, and we're going to produce maybe five of their designs. And it's a way of, it's, it's really exciting for us to work with a new young designer. And it's great for a new young designer to get their fabric actually into production. Yeah. In, you know, so it's, we're doing this as an experiment see how, how it all works out. But, um, you know, fabric buying, uh, you know, I mean, who doesn't love it? Yeah. What a great, what I mean, a great. it sounds like a dream come true. I'm sure lots of listeners are probably thinking that, like, what a wonderful job to have, you know, to travel the world and choose fabrics for a shop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that sounds it, great. It's fantastic. And, you you know, you get to see, you know, just the real nitty-gritty, the real makers the real printers, weavers. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But your, you know, what your customers are depending on is your curatorial expertise, your eye, you know, your ability to understand this fabric and know how it's going to behave and just your ability to choose, you know, so they're coming to you because you are, you're, you're, you're able to pick the best. Um, I, yeah. I, very important to have a curated collection because everything is nice or you know you there's so many fabrics that are just beautiful we could have everything but i think we kind of try to keep it as fairly tight and and keep it just this is what the kind of fabric you buy from merchants and mills other fabric you can buy from other people which is equally as beautiful it's just different right and we try to keep our remit always like this is what we do this is what's available from us yeah and there's something so pleasing about looking through the selection that's there and loving everything you know what i mean so that there's nothing there that you're like oh i don't like that one you know it's like oh. i love all of them and oh, it's it works they all work together like you might not like yellow but you know what i mean but you're still like oh. that yellow one is a good yellow you know like you love them all and they all work yeah, I think it's, um, there's just something so nice about looking at a shop like that. So 
Um, okay. So, um, do you have anything coming up that you wanted to, I mean, you have that, you talked about that, um, graduate collection, which is cool. And you talked about the new renovations at the shop, um, where you're going to have a sewing school upstairs, which is really neat. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention before you get to your recommendations that's coming? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, well, we've, We've always got things in the pipeline. So we've got several new patterns in the pipeline. Some of them will make it through. Some of them will be discarded. Um, but, yeah, we're always, you know, working on new things. We're, we're working on a new book right now. So that's about denim. So that's quite exciting. So, yeah. Okay, great. Oh, denim. That sounds really good. Denim is um, denim is hot. There's lots of, lots of neat jeans patterns. And, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. All right, good. So people can look out for that coming out. And do you know around when that's going to be ready? Uh, well, we 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 will probably finish it probably at the end of July. But then it's up to the publishers for how long it takes to actually be released. Right. So it normally takes at least you know at least a year before it's actually on the shelf. All right. So like 2019, 2020, somewhere in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah take a look at, uh, look out for that. So, all right, I want to make sure we get to your list. So um, you were talking about enjoying your garden. I know that um, where you live and where in Rye and um, where the shop is, is very close to the sea, which is windy. So um, talk a little bit about sort of gardening in that environment and what you enjoy. I think, uh, I don't think I'm not much of a shopper. So I like you know, whatever I'm doing, I kind of like to get my hands dirty. And so I love, I've, you know, only recently properly discovered gardening and I absolutely love it. So that is something that, you know, I spend my weekends doing. And I, it's a very, where I live, it's a very windy coastal location and um, it's very flat. So, um, yeah, it's a challenging environment. But the best of it is um, we have a beautiful... Um, a uh, uh, country house near us called Great Dixter and they have amazing gardens but they also they have an amazing aesthetic so every piece of furniture you find in their in their garden little thatch porches and um, tufted shelters or it's just exquisitely um, curated and put together so gardening is also an excuse for me to wander up to Great Dixter and say, you know, I just kind of look around and see, you know, how they've styled this, how they've, what wood they've used, what, how they've made everything look so amazing. It's very English looking, but it's very relaxed. It's very, you know, kind of slightly, it's all handmade and a bit shabby, not shabby, kind of like weathered. Weathered is a better word, uh, is what I mean. Uh, but I love it. Yeah, it's beautiful. So is Great Dixter, is that open to the public? It is open to the public. I think it has a, it's maybe closed in the winter season, but it's open, the gardens are open. There's a, 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 um, a Tudor house, a Elizabethan house, and there's a you know, little shop and cafe and nurseries. So yeah, it's amazing. So if people come and visit Merchant and Mills, then they can go to Great Dexter as well. See, I'm, I'm putting together like a day trip here for people. <laughs> that's, a, that's a day trip. Yes, no, and it is, it's definitely worth it. On a sunny day, you get a proper slice of English 
pod. Okay. Okay. See, this is perfect. This is my day trip is like my (laughs) idea. Like this is my new vacation. Okay. Um, all right. And then you also discovered, um, an American photographer, um, name and in your, you know, um, Roderick is a photographer. So I'm sure you appreciate photography quite a bit at your household, but, um, his name is Saul and his last name pronounced Leiter. Lighter, yeah. Lighter, okay. Um, So what is it about his work that's catching your eye? I think, um, you know, I get exposed to a lot of photography through projects, you know, obviously as a photographer and he buys a lot of um, photography books. So I see lots of different things that I wouldn't have probably stumbled across. And so Lighter was a, he worked for both, he worked for different um, magazines, but he wasn't a big name. He was a very small name. And but he did these magical um, photographs where you might have half the picture is an umbrella. And then in the background, you've got this beautiful model. But she's kind of obscured. It's kind of like um, you're, he, he's, he's, the way he's composed the photograph is just really uh, so clever, so, so beautifully done. And, you know, that's... It's, I think, you know, it's hard to be taken by surprise, so, but that really, that whole, his whole um, style took, really took me by surprise, and it was a beautiful discovery. Okay, I'll try to see if I can find an image or two online that we can um, link to so people can get a taste. Um, and you have a dog named Flower, who I think yeah. we heard, um, was that him barking, or is it a he or a she? She. A she. Was, was that her barking a little bit earlier? Yeah, it was. Okay. All right. So we heard a little bit of flower earlier. Uh, And you like um, to take her walking around and you found a bunch of these long goose feathers and we're thinking about um, like a corset or something like that. No. Well, um, I think uh, I started to, uh, I live quite rurally. And um, so I started to collect, I've never really been one to collect stones or feathers or things that, that you might find on your walks. Um, but it's suddenly taken an interest to me, and it never really has before. And I'm always surprised when things are, it's like, this is going to lead somewhere. I don't know where it's going to lead. So I'm like a huge pot of these really long, lovely uh, goose feathers. And um, and then there's like some fields around me that I might just sneak in and get some um, some straw, some corn, and to make some corn dollars. Corn dollars are traditional uh, British sort of um, handicraft that uh, you used to see a lot around harvest time. They're like little sculptures almost made of corn. And Alexander McQueen famously made a woman's corset using the same technique. As oh, okay. It was made in corn, the, the corset. And I'm not going to attempt anything like that. But I feel like there's something in this and I'm going to do a little bit of experimentation. And it, it might be one of those things that, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. It's awful. <laughs> I might just discover something new, and you just don't know. But it is something that's interesting. I think sometimes certain things will start to take my interest that I've never taken my interest before. So, Carolyn, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast and to share the story of Merchant and Mills with us. It was really wonderful talking with you. Likewise, Abby. Thank you very much for inviting me. And you've been listening to the Walsh and Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg.
Visit my blog, WalshyNaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Hello Atelier, the podcast that takes you inside the artist's studio. Join host Betsy Blodgett as she sits down with quilters, textile artists, ceramicists, painters, and more, many in their very own studios. Further immerse yourself in creative worlds by visiting helloatelier.org to see photos from their studio visits and links to each artist's work. Then sign up for the Hello Atelier newsletter for bonus interviews with makers and entrepreneurs, including me. Hello Atelier is available on your favorite podcast app. Tune in to their latest episode with quilter Lou Keynes. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe and give them a rating. Thank you so much, Hello Atelier. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.